Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, and I will be, as always, your host. Today we'll be speaking with Professor John Burnham uh, about his book that he edited, After Freud Left, A Century of Psychoanalysis in America, published by the University of Chicago Press. It's a book that looks at the intersection of culture and psychoanalysis in the United States, the ways in which culture has uh, an opening for psychoanalysis or does not, and that psychoanalysis in many respects um, rises or falls on the basis of the cultural surround in which uh, it's situated. The book includes uh, writing by uh, many eminent historians. I'll just list their names quickly. Sanu Shamdasani, Richard Skews, Ernst Falsiter, George Macari, uh, Helu Saksahin, uh, Dorothy Ross, Lou Menand, uh, Elizabeth Lundbeck, and Jean-Christophe Agnew. That's Louis Menand. I don't actually know him, but we read him in The New Yorker and are familiar with him. Um, anyway, uh, he's a, Dr. Burnham is a very uh, renowned uh, historian of psychoanalysis and of psychology. Uh, he's published a plethora of articles um, on the field of psychoanalysis, and he's been working at uh, writing in, in the field probably since um, he began uh, back in the 50s. So we're very pleased to have him with us today. And just one uh, heads up to the listener. During our uh, interview, somehow the phone line went dead, which has never happened before. So um, you will hear the line go dead, uh, or you'll hear some silence. Just give it 15 seconds. It's not psychoanalytic silence. It's actually technological uh, problems. And um, I call Dr. Burnham back, and then we resume the interview. So hold tight. And uh, without further ado, uh, let's move on to the interview. Hi. Uh, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. It's uh, Tracy Morgan here again, your host. And um, today we're very happy to have with us um, Professor John Burnham, um, who we'll be speaking to today about his um, recent publication. It's a series of essays um, titled After Freud Left, A Century of Psychoanalysis in America, um, University of Chicago Press. And uh, we've just finished reading the book and have enjoyed it greatly, and we're glad to have you here. So, so welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, Dr. Burnham. Thank you very much. You're, <laughs> you're, you're very welcome. Um, I guess I'll begin with one question. Um, uh, people, uh, I've been doing these interviews for a little over a year and change, and I've been getting feedback, and people have told me that I tend to ask authors um, what might look like a more clinically oriented question, which is usually something like, what prompted you to write this book? Um, and so uh, people have said, well, why do you do that? Why don't you just ask them what the book is about? And so um, <laughs> I think I'm going to ask you that question. Um, can you tell the listening audience uh, what is this book about after Freud left? After Freud left is a series of invited essays that fell together just beautifully to make a beginning of a history of 
psychoanalysis in the United States after Freud's famous visit, 1909. Uh, there was a century, so we use a century mark for it. Mm-hmm. The book uh, consists of essays by leading historians of psychoanalysis and leading cultural historians of the United States. And I'm happy to say that of the people invited, only one refused, and that was certainly excusable. These were absolutely wonderful people, each with a very different take on it, Mm -hmm. and yet they all worked together and produced this book after Freud left. And when you said that they were invited, so you extended the invitations. You said, okay, these are, these are the people I want to hear from, and I, these are the... Uh, and how, how did it come together? I mean, you know, some people are writing about the early part of the century. Some are writing you know, in the post-war uh, period. Um, how did how did the how did sort of people decide and you know, think about what it was that they were going to um, contribute? Because the book reads really um, it's quite a nice it's quite a nice has a nice narrative arc to it. And given that you have so many different contributors, um, that would not necessarily be uh, how how things might work out. Um, so can you talk a bit about that? Because you because uh, it does have a good narrative arc and yet many different historians. Uh, I'm sorry to tell you, in one word, it was an accident. <laughs> There's no such thing as a mistake, you know, Freud said. So, <laughs> but each each author is asked to write reflections on something that he or she would think about. What happened? You know, what about a century has passed since Freud visited the United States? No, you know, they were given carte blanche, and when the essays came in, they just fell into chronological order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a couple of places where uh, there are, I would consider big gaps, but that's that's another story. Well, that's an interest. That's an interesting story because as I um, as I read the book, there were moments where um, I thought, oh. What about this, or what, or what about that? What would you say the gaps um, were? Because there's, there's certainly a lot more that can be written on this topic. Um, yeah, uh, the two major gaps that I noticed, and I think others did as well, um, the 1920s and 30s rise of the culture and personality school when social scientists took up psychoanalytic thinking and this was extremely powerful mm-hmm. in the United States, dominating. Yep. And the second big gap that we all noticed was the end of the 20th century uh, in a way that is just too recent for people to have addressed comfortably. Uh, they ventured into it, some of the essayists, but um, there are a number of factors. One is, did psychoanalysis actually fade out? 
uh, second factor is, you know, this is very recent. Uh, we're getting into very current debates, and that's very difficult to get a handle on for, for an historian, or at least for most historians. Sure. And uh, finally, uh, it's just uh, we don't have the background material in cultural history for the turn of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed there was one um, there was one area that I was I was curious about, and maybe this is a, jumping a bit ahead into um, sort of thinking about the moment of 19, uh, 1968. I always think that uh, things really changed um, in psychoanalysis in response to, and I'm using 1968 in quotes, um, you know, sort of as a, as a historical moment. Um, and I found it interesting in the book that um, what's not written about is a uniquely American school. I mean, we have Kohut, and there's a, Elizabeth Lundbeck has written a fascinating chapter about, you know, uh, about uh, the rise of Kohut and his um, theories of narcissism and how they uh, were... Um, interacting with um, the culture of narcissism, you know, with with the 70s and um, with the turn um, inward and away from from the social. But there was another movement um, called relational psychoanalysis, which is really uh, very very popular, um, and it's an uh, it's a homegrown American product, um, uh, mostly out of the uh, New York University postdoc program in psychoanalysis in. They champion some very American ideas, um, and uh, in their journal, in fact, they had an issue in 2004 where they asked the question, what's American about American psychoanalysis? Um, and they're known for their interest in countertransferential transparency, uh, the dethroning of the analyst as king, um, for the idea that uh, perhaps democratically the analyst and patient co-create the analytic understandings that come out of the treatment. Um, and I was curious, because uh, I thought, oh, it, this wasn't written about. Is it because it's just too recent? I mean, it's, it is about a 30-year-old movement, perhaps. Um, and it seems like a very American uh, phenomena. I think probably as close as any of the essays got was to allude to changes in ideas about the self. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as you correctly uh, pointed out, you, we summarized 1968, etc., by saying that people, uh, intellectuals, uh, started writing about the the uh, personal as opposed to the social or whatever. But we um, can go on from there and you know um, talk about the changes in itself, which is a whole literature in its own. Mm-hmm. And none of the essayists seriously took up, I mean, there are a couple of footnotes, I think. Mm-hmm. None of them seriously took up the challenge of writing about the changes in the idea of the self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where and people define it differently. But certainly something happened around the 1970s period. Right. Yeah, I, I, would, I would say so, because there's um, a lot of... Uh, there's, <laughs> there's a move, interestingly, you know, in, in, in uh, 
sort of chronologically, you know, we begin with a psychoanalysis that has the idea of it's a one-person psychology. There's one person in the room, and that, and there's one psyche in the room, and that's the patients. And this movement, um, very much democratically oriented, says there's there are two people in the room interacting with each other, impacting um, each other, and possibly, you know, it's a. It's a, you know, it's a, it's, of course, it's a critique of authority, which is, you know, what we could say 1968 um, certainly brought to bear um, in the culture at large, that uh, there was an attempt to make, um, to critique um, the powers that be for, for the problems that, um, that these, these, when these, young, these analysts were training or becoming analysts, they were often trained by more of the authoritarian ego psychology school, and they rebelled mm-hmm. against that. And, crea- and created this um, this other movement, which is um, I don't know maybe maybe we have to write a, a chapter on that <laughs> someplace someplace well, else. You know. I'm sorry, Tracy. I, if I'd known, I would have certainly advised you to contribute. A <laughs> well, you would <laughs> if I could still write history. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know. I um, but yeah, it 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 is an in- it is interesting to think about what's America what's. Because part of what the book looks at is how American culture has room for or does not have room for, um, at various moments, um, psychoanalytic thinking and how um, chameleon-like, you know, how, how the psychoanalysis can be used by so many different social forces. Um, and it can be diluted uh, endlessly. Yes. And, uh, so that it- I mean, that's one of the questions which is raised in this book. How much do you have to dilute it before it ceases to be psychoanalysis or Freud? Right. Can you say some more, can you say some more about that? I think this is something that uh, a lot of analysts are struggling with currently. <laughs> um, well, uh, the model, of course, uh, was American eclecticism, the American model was, you know, we are distant over here, away from Europe, and so we can pick and choose the best from the Europeans and not be caught up with... And this is this goes back to the 18th century, actually. Mm-hmm. It's just a tradition. Uh, and this was the accepted way. What is fair? You know, everyone has to be recognized... Uh, very democratic, and so we will pick and choose the best from whatever ever there is and not exclude anybody, including psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. And, of course, for the Freudians of the mid-20th century and for Freud himself, what this meant was that people missed the structure that underlay the intellectual structure that underlay psychoanalytic practice and psychoanalytic thinking uh, in general. I mean, how can you have um, how can you have drive theory without sex? <laughs> Which is, you know, you pick and choose, and many people tried to. I and a lot came, and this was the the general direction that things were going in the late 20th century. There were every, every, all these different schools and all of them saying, oh, we're psychoanalysts, and we still have that. 
It's uh, now, it, maybe they are all psychoanalysts. Um, I don't. The larger question probably is, what really was Freud's legacy? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, his legacy was many things to many people, but it doesn't <laughs> make it any the less Freud's or any the less a legacy. That's that. That's really that. Really does come across in the book as well. Um, how Americans have made made use of uh, of psychoanalysis. I was I was someplace recently and talking about an attack uh, in the New York Times. Uh, had printed a a piece saying, you know, still in therapy, enough already. Underneath a photograph of Freud's couch, and so this caused an uproar, and people were not happy, and uh, were writing into the. The New York Times, and I was um, with some analysts from a different institute than the one I'm affiliated with, and talking about this campaign of letter writing, getting analysts to to speak up and say, you know, this is clearly an attack on on the profession. And the the person who wrote the uh, opinion page touted a 28 day cure sort of thing and poo pooed psychoanalysis. But as I was speaking to these these analysts, you know, I've used the word unconscious a lot. And uh, I used the word psychoanalysis a lot. And I said, you know, we have to protect, to defend and protect the, un the existence of the unconscious. And one analyst said, and she's, you know, from a graduate from a major institute, I'm not very comfortable with the use of the word unconscious. I think we have to talk more in terms of attachment and meaning. And so here we are. And I'm staring across the room wondering, do we do the same thing? Do, do yeah. we... Do, are we coming from the same place? Because there is such profound eclecticism here. Um, and, it, and it is of all degrees. Um, I mean, it, I, you know, the school which uh, came out of the, uh, well, uh, there, there's, there's a school of, I don't know what it's, it may be uh, another version of Kohut. Yeah. Hi, I think the line went down. I don't know what happened. Oh, my goodness. Well, hold on. I've never had this happen. Um, <laughs> uh, well, we just had a, a little bit of, uh, of silence, and that's... <laughs> we'll just pick it up from where we were. You were saying there's a school that it was related to um, the Cohutians, well, I think. Uh, all, yeah, and all of, you know, with this emphasis on... Uh, Without going into the background, the emphasis on siblings as opposed to uh, parents, if you want to say, must, you know, one of the major questions was, can you have Freud without the Oedipus complex? Right. I mean, this is a major question, and uh, you can have differences of opinion like that. Well, there, there certainly are, and, and some would say, I think the French usually say about, the French analysts say about the Americans that we've um, desexualized Freud, that we've, uh, we've taken the, the, the drive, uh, the libido, and, uh, and infantile sexuality out of the Freudian pantheon, and um, so hence are we really doing um, psychoanalysis. So. Well, I think if you look at uh, the cognitive... A revolution which came in the late 20th century, mm -hmm. that you can see that there was a, a basic approach to dynamic thinking, the internal conflicts, biologically based, mm 
mm-hmm. and environmentally based. Mm-hmm. These conflicts uh, playing themselves out, that's the dynamic approach. And that is what has been denied uh, by the, in the wake of the cognitive revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a story of one teacher who uh, was trying to teach a little Freud to his college class, and the students were unable to comprehend the idea of unconscious. They, they just could not comprehend that there could be an unconscious. They, they had feelings and so on, but it, everything did not hang together with uh, this other biological base in a polar drive theory. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's that kind of problem that makes people say, well, what about the, uh, what about Freud? Is he really dead? And I think that gives us uh, an idea if you can find any evidence of dynamic thinking and not trace it anywhere else, it's very likely still left over from Freud, but mm-hmm. that would be a fun thing to track down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting the uh, the fate of uh, of the unconscious um, or the ability to acknowledge that there that there is an unconscious um, is uh, I mean, we talk about that uh, a lot. I think how it's been kind of wiped out. It makes people uh, uneasy. I mean, psychoanalysis um, should make people uneasy. I think because it is uh, it does talk about uneasy making uh, topics. Um, I think I wanted to ask you. Um, about this, I was I was thinking that uh, a lot of people may not know who are listening um, that uh, med- the medicalization of psychoanalysis, um, the uh, request that a person have an MD um, be a psychiatrist, um, is a is a pretty uniquely American uh, phenomena. And as you're a scholar of psychoanalysis in America, I was wondering if you could speak to us about how the medicalization of psychoanalysis in America, how you understand its, its comeuppance and how it came about. You mean the end of medicaliz- medicalization? Well, the, that, that, well, there's the end of it, but that rather we began, at least this is my understanding, um, and it was upsetting to Freud um, and to Faranzi and, and to many, um, but that uh, the the push, for instance, of the New York psychoanalytic, you know, some of the more um, uh, early, you know, early uh, institutes that were founded um, wanted um, there to be MDs. Isn't that correct? To that that yes, was who yes. they would train. The MD was required. The MD was required. I think a lot of there's a lot of confusion. Um, uh, I think about this, like why what was the need for the MDs? Because you don't see this in Europe. You know, you're not reading analysts in Europe and going, oh, he's, a, he's an MD. That's, it's almost rare to find. Um, can you help the audience to understand why, why, we, went the med- why we went the medical route um, at, the begin- at, at psychoanalysis's beginnings in this country? Uh, there are a couple of reasons historically. Of course, it was a way of keeping... Uh, fringe characters 
other psychoanalysis. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, the second thing is people in the United States really believe that uh, medical degree was important. And I have heard it argued within this past year by a senior psychoanalyst that yes, people can do technical psychoanalysis and carry it off, but without that medical training, whatever is involved in it, there's a whole dimension that is missing. And uh, certainly, uh, in the among the analysts of the mid 20th century, they had a strong feeling that the mind, whatever was being analyzed, was based in the body. And I was deeply impressed by how quickly they really good analysts would refer a patient to the neurologist rather than just carrying on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than saying, well, it's all in your mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one sees dramatic cases in which the clinically experienced physician doing psychoanalysis picks up on, in one case that I saw, uh, Pick's disease. Mm-hmm. which would not really be known even to a very well-trained lay analyst. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this, this is just a whole approach. The patient is a medical patient. And it's, uh, of course, uh, the other historical force was the entrance of psychologists, right. well-trained psychologists into psychoanalysis, uh, encouraged uh, in the 1940s by um, government fellowships and government programs because there just weren't enough people and these were very talented people, uh, the psychologists were. Mm-hmm. I believe I believe they had to... Um, does it come up in the book that, the, that, that there was a lawsuit, right, against the American psychoanalytic... Uh, Led oh, by, yeah. yeah, led by psychologists, so as to gain admission, you know, and and now we see actually at the, um, for instance, here in New York City, the New York Psychoanalytic is, I believe, accepting people with uh, uh, social work um, licenses, um, but uh, I don't think that. Um, but I was, I also, someone told me that they didn't have anyone with a social work license at the moment in training there, perhaps, but that, that, I mean, that's really quite a change from, from where they began with, uh, A.A. Brill all those years ago with, with the medical doctors. Um, but I've never heard that explanation that you gave, that the, that the MD can uh, tell the difference between an or- organic illness and, uh, unconscious conflict as, as a reason, um. Well, some some uh, psychologists, you know, first-rate psychologists doing analysis uh, simply make a uh, physical exam by a neurologist mm-hmm. uh, required before they will undertake a full analysis. Yeah, yeah. So to sa- safeguarding everyone. But you also mentioned that there was a fear of the fringe. What, what would that fringe have been? 
what was it in in the uh, early days of um, the advent of American of psychoanalysis in America? Who who, uh, who was know. that fringe? <laughs> well, you know, anybody could set up. I've recently published about the case of the anthropologist A. L. Kroeber, who simply set himself up as a psychoanalyst in San Francisco in 1920. Hmm. I'm sure he he said he's a he was very smart, and he said that he was as qualified as most of the MDs doing that work mm-hmm. because he was intelligent, he could read, and he understood, and he was well-read, and he had uh, had a little psychoanalysis, not much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whatever was customary in that day. But here's someone who just put up the shingle psychoanalyst and the patients would come mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right it's a question of what how how does one how does one become an analyst and when is one ready to when is one ready to be an analyst because certainly there's many uh, mds i guess who um don't have a particular well some, i mean some have particular gifts as analysts and um they don't have particular gifts with patients at all. Yes, <laughs> and so exactly. I'm better you say it than me. So yeah, <laughs> and I've 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 met I've met both and have wondered like you're an analyst? Are you sh- sure? Um, oh. You know, say say la vie. Um, but you, one of the things that uh, I was rereading um, in preparation for the interview, I was going through a book I'm sure you know well by Nathan Hale, uh, yeah. the rise and crisis of psychoanalysis in the United States. And I was thinking that at the end of his book, which it, that book goes, uh, follows from 1917 to 1985, the profession here. And my sense is that he, he says the profession is, it was in a state of disarray and decline, uh, at that point because of, um, the strident, uh, demands, uh, at least this is my reading of it, the strident demands imposed by positivism, by, you know, Karl Popper's critique, et cetera. And I was thinking that that your book suggests something um, different that the decline um, has less seems to have less to do with a debate about science um, and uh, and research and uh, scientific proof of the you know is psychoanalysis a science um, so how how do you think in your book um, uh, the reasons for the decline of the position of psychoanalysis in the culture um, are understood. Okay, uh, let me just say that uh, the DSM-3 in 1980 uh, and the changes in insurance have damaged psycho- classical psychoanalytic practice more than anything. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I believe it's a it's also affected psychiatry in general. I think it's the first time that a formal uh, economic change has uh, shaped a whole medical practice. I don't know of any other time when economics determined medical practice. Mm-hmm. But um, the essayists in the book um, generally are uh, measuring, in the late 20th century, are measuring intellectual impact. How explicitly do 
people talk about psychoanalytic ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think they're examining texts, and uh, I think they're examining uh, the conversations they hear and the the, uh, papers they read. And I think they're also saying they're very much aware of how Freud was everyday conversation and Freudianism pervaded everyday conversation in the mid-20th century among intellectuals. And, of course, that reflected itself in the popular realm as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, <laughs> you, we're just having a series of uh, old films which show uh, psychiatric treatment, supposedly, or people write about the history of Freud in the theater, which goes way back. Well, what is it's funny in reading the book. Um, I was struck by, uh, you know, how psychoanalytic ideas seem to be adding so much to the fields of sociology, anthropology. Um, you know, even perhaps, you know, we had probably more. Uh, I wonder if there was more writing and uh, from psychohistorians then the mid-century than than now. Um, the names Marcusa, Norman Norman O. Brown, Lionel Trilling. Um, Alfred Kazin, they all come to mind, um, and they're and they're peppered throughout the book. And you realize these are some major thinkers, mid-century, in a mm-hmm. variety of fields, um, really taking seriously uh, uh, Freudian mm-hmm. thought. How how would you describe the status, um, or maybe it's the fate, <laughs> of uh, psychoanalysis in the academy uh, currently? Uh, well, what's happened is I think it's moved. <laughs> uh-huh. Where did it go? <laughs> it has gone um, from uh, psychology, where it used to be much better entrenched than it is now, mm. although there are still 3,000 members of the psychoanalytic division of the American Psychological Association. Yep. Um, there... Uh, where it's gone has been to film studies and uh, to interdisciplinary humanities and other interdisciplinary programs which are not well defined and not well organized, but there are a lot of them mm-hmm. and they're very well supported. Mm-hmm. And there's another factor that's come in. Uh, most well-trained analysts have always held that Freud made a great break when he decided that he was not seeing neuroses that were caused by trauma, but was seeing neuroses which developed out of internal drives and experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, of course, the trauma has come back. And people talk a lot now about trauma. And you particularly hear this, I find, 
in humanities and uh, film studies. It's an odd place. Yeah. Uh, I'm not myself currently up on this, and none of our essayists took this up in any serious way. As I say, it's a great gap in the book. I think, um, yeah, there, there really has been a turn um, uh, from um, unconscious conflict to um, real-life trauma and possibly a turn from, away from uh, repression to the term dissociation. Uh, so you, you know, so you really, you do really see that um, as popular um, on the American scene. Anyway, I don't think as popular um, in England or or France, um, or certainly not. I don't think in uh, in Argentina. But here we we do we do focus on trauma. We seem to be interested in um, what really, <laughs> what quote unquote, what really happened, rather than what the individual made of what happened. Um, and it, it's, it's curious that uh, other, th- other formulations of, of Freudian thought that aren't about trauma are having a hard time, I think, is, if I understand what you're saying, that they don't really have, they're not really getting much play, the drives, the conflicts, the, you know, the Oedipal um, mm-hmm. situation. Um, I wonder, uh, do you have any thoughts about the turn toward trauma? Well, you know, my immediate speculation is uh, this is so much like the very early days, Hmm. you know, between, well, right around 1900. It's so strikingly like it um, that I wonder if there's going to be some new person come along and uh, discover that it's not uh, trauma that's causing... Uh, problems, or, but uh, some internal drive and, and structure. Uh-huh. I mean, I can just imagine someone doing exactly now what Freud did a hundred years ago. <laughs> say this is this is pretty. This is this is a fascinating idea. Can you say more? I mean, well. I'm, uh, for a long time, people understood that the trauma was, that is, the hidden memory was the cause of the illness. And uh, this is what I'm hearing now. Uh, you know, we don't need to go into the unconscious. All you have to do is to uh, take this traumatized person and uh, see if we can treat that. Uh, and they're using similar things with cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's uh, I I know history doesn't repeat itself, <laughs> but it sure has a very strong ghost sometimes. <laughs> Well, well, there there is something you know. I know you know about it—the repetition compulsion. Um, so do, would uh, would we have? Do we have a? You think it's time um, for us to have uh, um, someone come in and talk about um, the uh, the, le- the the invisible rather than the than the visible, and to bring back that uh, those sorts of ideas about the unconscious and the drives, things that can't be seen, measured. Um, or, or known so uh, so transparently. Um. Well, 
many people are aware of the writings of Eric Kandel, mm. who's trying to find another biological basis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, I mean, instead of finding it in the environment, you know, mm-hmm. it will go back to the biological, mm-hmm. even if it's genetic. Interesting. But that's the way we are now. Right, right. That I think you described the moment well. Um, are you trained as an analyst by any chance? I'm sorry? Are you trained as a psychoanalyst as well as being a historian? I No, no. I've, I've never even been analyzed. Well, it's never, it's never too late. When are you, you going to start? I'd have to go to the medical school first. <laughs> well, I think you've been, because you've really been uh, studying, um, this is not your first book uh, on, uh, on things psychoanalytic, is it? I believe you have. No. I worked very, for many years on the uh, early years of psychoanalysis in the United States, and I investigated the history of Freud's instinct theory and Mm-hmm. I've done a number of things. <laughs> but after all, this is not my book. This is uh, a book written by very gifted essayists. Mm-hmm. And some very, and I think for, um, uh, there's some well-known names in the book to people who aren't, aren't historians. I mean, particularly uh, Louis Menand, who is, you know, a public intellectual of sorts writing, um, you know, regularly for the, uh, the New Yorker. His name really jumped out, um, and uh, Dorothy Ross has, um, you know, been at this for quite a, quite a long time, you know, working, working around you know, Freud and modernism, I, I believe, if my memory is correct. Yeah, um, she, she, her essay is fabulous, um, really a terrific essay. Um, what is it titled? Uh, let me see here. She just, she really just creates this cultural surround. Um, Freud and the Vicissitudes of Modernism in the United States, 1940 to 1980, in which she, uh, which she goes on about the Apollonian and the Dionysian uh, uses of, of Freud, which is, which is such a wonderful breakdown um, of you know, how these different thinkers used, um, used Freudian ideas. Um, and Elizabeth Lundbeck, who wrote uh, write The Psychiatric Persuasion, I believe, which people may may know that that book. They were names that, that jumped out at me, um, you know, right away, and I was very excited to to get to read them. Um, but you've been studying uh, things Freudian for so long, and but you but you never decided to go and become an analyst. No. I don't <laughs> want to cure anybody. <laughs> Good. But I, I have watched analysts uh, or clinicians work, and uh, I deeply admire the work that they do. Mm-hmm. And I highly value it. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, we have in this book the other part, not just the clinical, but we have the intellectuals who are so powerfully affected. As you mentioned, Carthy Ross describes it, and Louis Menon describes anxiety, yep. which was so pervasive in post war period. And there's also an interesting story about, um, I'm not sure whose essay it's in, um, but I'm thinking about the moment when uh, the American psychoanalytic wants to um, 
leave the international. Um, and so this was in, I guess, the 30s, right? Is that correct? 1938, yeah. Yeah, they want to leave and you know, sort of defect and you no longer have um, that relationship. And then suddenly it's, uh, you know, the Anschluss. It's the, you know, here, here comes Hitler. And um, a fascinating moment in... in the same committee that was trying to make terms with the international and suddenly forced to deal with the refugees. Right. It's very dramatic, yes. That's in uh, Macari, George Macari's essay. That's it, right. right. And he, of course, has written this great book on the origins of psychoanalysis. Yeah, yeah. But it was an incredible moment because so many analysts who we know here, you know, what I'm... From Clara, Clara Thompson, um, I don't know. My mind is drawing a blank at the moment. But so many, so many analysts um, who came over were the exact people that the Americans were saying, "No, you know, we're <laughs> we're stepping away, and we don't, we're not going to, you know, over the issue of, of medicalization of, of the uh, the need to have uh, an MD." I believe. So um, those same people came over to really. Um, Plant seeds, uh, psychoanalytic seeds in this in this culture that wasn't perhaps really uh, ready to have them. Some of those ideas that they brought, that those anal- European analysts brought with them. Well, they were very attuned to philosophy and theory, mm-hmm. and uh, they did deeply affect Americans in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, they certainly were very talented intellectuals. Uh, very well educated in the classical way mm-hmm. in European culture. Mm-hmm. I think it greatly upgraded things, but there were some very smart Americans too. Mm-hmm. Who comes? Who comes to mind? Lawrence Kuby, mm-hmm. for example, who all, all of that uh, uh, his generation, you know. Very smart. Mm-hmm. So, um, in fact, one of the things that happened was that American, the American intellectual establishment recognized the quality of these people. And that's one of the reasons that psychoanalysis made so much progress so fast. It's simply uh, the ability of American intellectuals to recognize quality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to put it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing particularly subtle about that. Uh, the content of what they were saying was in some ways not so important as the just the quality of it, mm-hmm. the quality of the thinking. And that that, it, that Americans could recognize and accept that is a, an interesting and curious phenomenon in itself. Mm-hmm. How do you understand that, that phenomena, that they were able to, to take in these people who they were attempting to separate from at the same time? I mean, it's, it's a curious moment. Um, they were very intelligent. <laughs> and, uh, the other thing is that psychoanalysis has had a huge intellectual framework uh, undergirding 
And if you recognize the power of, of that thinking, and it was classical Aristotelian thinking mm-hmm. uh, applied to very un-Aristotelian problems, <laughs> uh, but they saw the power of it. They were convinced. Mm-hmm. Um, people who brush Freud off as, in a superficial way um, really don't come off very well. Mm-hmm. Interesting to think about. Um, is uh, I wanted to ask you, is there's a, a focus, I think, in the book that's looking at, um, that looks at what the intellectuals are thinking as a measure of what's happening um, culturally. I think I have a quote from you. You say, altogether, if one reads the record, for a century, intellectuals did provide the best me- measure and indicator of the impact of Freud. And I wanted to ask, uh, I mean, that, that's interesting, right? Because it's uh, there, there's not another cultural measure um, that comes to mind for thinking about Freud's uh, impact um, on American culture. Is is that is it because the intellectuals were so uh, they they just you know, had such such output that you couldn't look at other cultural measures? For instance, I'm just thinking of uh, you know television, film, radio, you know other. Well, when you get on a popular level. It's very often derivative from the intellectuals. Mm-hmm. To, to, that's what we pay intellectuals to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, so uh, then, so what? So, so with uh, the publication of this book, um, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what would you? How how would you like to see it go? I mean, because this book is you know it's being reviewed. I mean, as I. Uh, as I mentioned, um, Dr. Burnham and I had a, a brief phone call earlier today um, just to check on something, and I mentioned to him that in a local publication in Brooklyn called the Brooklyn Rail, uh, his his book is reviewed, and it has a nice photograph, you know, of the book, and it's a it's a very overall very positive uh, review. And um, I said, "What is this doing here? What a surprise, you know, to see this here." So, so what's what uh, would you like to see the impact of this book be? Uh, I'd like to see the power of the contributors who are first-rate intellectuals, mm-hmm. and they represent the very best. They're at the top of their field. I'd like to see their thinking make an impression. People understand. We don't. We aren't caught up in the old Freud wars of pro and con, Freud, etc. Mm-hmm. That we can now really take a measure of what happened in the last century. Well, and that... it's being done by uh, people whom uh, anybody can recognize as being of the first-rate quality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I sense that this book was, uh, you know, the way you just described it, it was like we're, we're now beyond the Freud Wars. Um, can you give us a quick recap? What are the Freud Wars? Uh, because I don't know that everyone listening is, is going to know. Oh. Um, and uh, and how did we get beyond them? Okay. Um, very quickly, the Freud Wars grew out of a reaction partly out of anti-authoritarian post 
1960s, partly out of just a natural reaction, because Freud had been made so much of and had been praised so much that uh, there was bound to be some reaction. But people started making ad hominem arguments. Mm. You know, did Freud smoke too much? If so, that means that psychoanalytic ideas are invalid. <laughs> and that's the logic that was involved. Uh-huh. And of course, people came in on the other side and it got very ugly. I, I thought it was not productive of anything good. Right. And a lot of us just stayed out. And now that's all dead. The new Freud studies, of which this book is a good example, is saying uh, we don't have to deal with all that. We're dealing with what actually happened, the power of psychoanalytic ideas, and what happened to them, and what that tells us not only about psychoanalytic ideas, but about the culture itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, that's a uh, well put, and it is it is something to think that not too long ago, <laughs> those Freud wars were were brought, you know were were really uh, still on fire. I, I think that there were there was the big argument about the um, uh, what was it the Smithsonian right back in no the Library of Congress a library yeah, of, yeah. In, in the mid nineties yeah that yeah. was that was like so, the last throwdown you know that was really. Yeah. Nobody, nobody wanted to have anything to do with that. Right. Uh, it was just very ugly and and uh, on. So what we have now are the new Freud studies, and they are fresh. They're different. They're, I think it's generational. Mm-hmm. But it's international. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I say, I think this book represents uh, the kind of scholarship we're going to have on Freud now. Well, that's very that that's exciting and, and welcome because it's really uh, very thought provoking, and I I enjoyed the book um, very much, and I'm hoping that the uh, readers, I mean the listeners out there, will will go out and get a copy um, because I think to begin to think about our history as analysts and our future, um, you know this this book it provides a terrific terrific grounding and has uh, marvelous uh, marvelous stories contained within it of. Uh, mm-hmm of what uh, ways in which psychoanalysis on the American scene has, um, has uh, flourished, has perished, has come back again. Um, and it was a terrific read. I think we're a little bit over our 50-minute hour because we did uh, lose contact for a moment there. <laughs> I don't know what happened to the phone. But um, I want to thank you very much, um, Dr. Burnham, for joining us uh, today uh, New Books in Psychoanalysis. Thank you. And uh, keep us posted if you're going to be publishing um, another uh, psychoanalytically oriented book because we'd love to talk to you again. Okay. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you.